Good morning, everyone. Whenever we do anything that the Lord was very specific in worship to say, do this, then we put on the stole. It's a symbol of the yoke of Christ, that we are uh, serving him always, but we remind ourselves extra with this piece of garment. Uh, this is something that we're about to do in worship, what Jesus said, because let's face it, the Bible lets us do all kinds of different churches, all kinds of different worship, but there's a few things that said, no matter where you are, who you are, do this, and communion is one of them, and so we're about to do that. Uh, we're about to take part in our first communion celebration. So these are uh, second and third graders who have not done communion before. So places, everyone, while I talk about it, let's form the line and parents into their places. So these second and third graders went through a class uh, some weeks ago on the meaning of communion and their families have discussed it and worked with them on it. And we have elders uh, Sam Huckabee and Pastor Marta Gilliland here to serve their first communion. And if you listen carefully, the children are going to guide us in our call to the table. So if you hear what they say about communion, then you will be prepared to receive communion yourself here in just a few moments, okay? So let us, let us begin. Come on up. Okay, I have a question for you. Why do we take communion? It is a command from Jesus. Thank you. Communion is a symbol. Tell us what a symbol is. Something we can see that helps us understand something we cannot see. Thank you. What is it that communion helps us see? Jesus died for our sins so, um, so we can live forever when he comes back. Excellent. And what did Jesus say about the bread on the night he was betrayed? This is my body, broken for you. And about the cup on the night he was betrayed, he said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of many. And? When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I eat and drink with you in my Father's kingdom. Thank you. You got the long one. All right, Holden. Here we are all together. Tell us why we take communion all together. To remind us that we are all brothers and sisters in the church. All right. And after you take communion, you're going to serve the congregation. So why is that important? We come to church not to be served, but to serve each other. Amen. May we all always remember that. All right, everyone else, come forward and receive your first communion. All right, let's celebrate with them. Now they're going to serve all of us. So if you are in, uh, if you have a child or if you are infused, we'd like you to uh, come first and receive communion. And then when you go to the back, you can, if you're in kids zone, you can check your kids in at the computer stations that are now back here. A few students, you can go on up and check yourselves in. So let's have them come into their place first. And then when it seems like they're all in place, the rest of us can join in behind them and receive these sacraments of communion together. Amen. Bring him forward.
Peter Bernadoni, you have been called here to clear up a misunderstanding which has arisen between you and your son. Clear up? There is nothing to clear up. My son is a good-for-nothing ingrate who takes advantage of his father. That's what he is. He wants to go out carousing with his friends and the ladies. Father pays. He needs weapons to cut a princely figure in battle. Father pays. And when he needs to get out of prison, father pays. And what does he do? He leaves to join the crusade, but comes back. He turns back and spends so much time with, with the lepers that people are afraid to buy my fabrics now, terrified. And then he sells off my entire stock and gives the proceeds to restore an old church that, that no one even uses. No one! That's the situation, your worship. Is it clear now? And you, Francesco, what do you have to say for yourself? That I am an ungrateful son. The ungrateful son of a father who has loved him like no other father has ever loved his son. A father who has had dreams for my future, unlike those of any other father. But I have another father who loved me even before Peter Bernardoni knew me. The father we all have in heaven. The father before whom all the fathers on earth are but babbling sons. Peter Bernardone wanted me to be a great knight. Our Father in heaven wants me to be the humblest of the humble. I ask your forgiveness, and I return the money I took from you. While renouncing my every right to your name and your inheritance,
He's called Peter Bernardoni, my father. But from now on, my only father shall be our father who art in heaven. Who art in heaven. Well, you like my new robe? <laughs> Brown's the new black, folks. Francis is in. Pope Francis is the new pope. He's all the rage. And Brown's the new black. Us Franciscan monks, started by St. Francis right there, they wear brown. I mean, I had two choices. I could either dress up like St. Francis, or I could kind of do that scene. <laughs> you know? Which would be a little entertaining, yeah? Invite your friends back next week. You never know. <laughs> Today, we celebrate just one saint in the tradition of the church, and that is Francis of Assisi. And we're going to explain everything about Francis that we can here in a few short moments. But in the entire 2,000 years of the Christian church, other than Jesus Christ, no one, and I mean this, not one individual has changed the church or European Western culture more than St. Francis. And yet very few people know much about him, and I think he'd like to have it that way. Born in 1181 in Assisi, Italy, Francis was the son of a wealthy merchant who sold silks and other cloths, very high society. And as a young man, Francis was a rambunctious type, getting in trouble, drinking, carousing, running around. And even as a soldier, he went off as a well-heeled prince knight type, off in the glorious battle during the Crusades. Was supposed to come back very wealthy, but over there, he got captured and was thrown into a jail, rotting in a dungeon in the Middle East. And he also got very sick. And so when he finally made it back after a year, during this process of imprisonment and during this process of illness, Francis slowly began to convert to Jesus. <coughs> he sobered up and he began to follow Jesus Christ. And when he was well enough, he made a pilgrimage a few miles away to Rome, to the Vatican. And he went to St. Peter's Basilica, and he was so moved by the poor outside the church on the steps that he got down with the other beggars and began to beg himself to help them out. When he got back to Assisi, he began to preach in the streets. He wasn't ordained, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't official in any sort. And he just began to tell people the words of Jesus, that they need to be absolutely free, that they had nothing to fear. Be like Jesus. Some of his wealthier friends began to hang out with him. They began to give up some stuff too, possessions and so forth, and following. And then he went on a little trip a few miles away to a country chapel called San Damiano. I think we got a picture. San Damiano Chapel, just outside Assisi. 
And Francis, in that chapel, praying by himself, saw a vision on a cross of Jesus Christ, on an icon. And Jesus said to Francis, he said, Francis, Francis, go and repair my house, which as you can see is falling into ruins. And Francis thought that Christ meant actually repair San Damiano, which was a dump. And so Francis came up with a plan. He says, okay, I'll repair your church, Jesus. And he went around. This was his campaign to repair the church. He said, everybody give me a block of stone, a building block. And people did. He went all around the countryside hauling in rocks. He got so many rocks, he repaired three churches. And they also gave him money as well. And then Francis did one of his more memorable acts, which we just caught up with here in this little movie. He took his father's silks and his, he sold his father's horse and all of his inventory. And he took the money to provide, the, he took the stuff and sold it to provide money to rebuild the church. His father's so outraged that he brings him before Bishop uh, Guido for punishment. And, and all of Assisi shows up, you know, because everybody loves to watch rich people fight, as you can tell by reality television. And, uh, and Francis gives back his dad all the money that he'd sold all his stuff and taken. And not only that, in his final renouncement, he strips down to buck naked and says, even the clothes on my back, I renounce. Nothing of mine is yours. And then he says these famous words, which they said in the film, until today, I always called Pietro de Bernardoni my father, but from this day forward, I have only one father, my father in heaven. And the bishop wrapped his robe around him, and he left town. Not long after, Francis heard a sermon that changed his life. And the sermon was from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. And it said this, The kingdom of heaven has come near, Jesus said. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or even two tunics or sandals or staff, for laborers deserve their food. Francis took this so literally, and Jesus' so words, Jesus' words so literally, that he began a spiritual order. He began to collect other brothers around him. And they created a little society of beggars called the Lesser Brothers. And they, were, they, they gathered together then even around them the, the, left off, the cast-offs and the leftovers in society. The lepers and the lame, the mentally infirmed, sinners, cast it, people cast out, just like Jesus did. And then they adopted a vow of poverty, which was very different than what was going on with the rest of monks in the church at the time who were living in splendor and had servants in gold and so forth, you know. They, had, they took on a vow of poverty, and they went into the city or out to the fields, and they worked. And whatever anybody would give them, that's what they ate. If they didn't get anything that day, they didn't eat. In many days, they didn't have anything to eat. They were truly beggars at that point. Now, you have to understand that this was a huge deal at the time. Because people, the church was living in opulence and tremendous power. They had everything. I mean, they show in the film, you know, the bishop getting a hand to lift up, you know, to stand up. 
That, that literally happened. There was so much gold as thread and silver woven into the robes and so forth, you needed help standing up. It was so heavy. And so in 1209, Francis needed to clarify how he stood with the church because he was really upsetting a lot of the wealthy people in the church. I mean, the wealthy clergy and so forth. And so he goes to Rome to get an audience with the Pope. He has a friend who's a lawyer and, you know, gets an audience. And Pope Innocent III, that night, before Francis comes, has a dream. And in the dream, he sees this guy, Francis, uh, holding up like this, the, the leaning church, the Peter's Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica there in the Vatican. And he's holding it up from falling over. You know, well, the Pope wakes up and he's like, something's going on. And then in comes Francis as an order of business. And everyone thought they'd write Francis off. You know, here's a smelly beggar coming in asking for the Pope's blessing to start an order of other smelly beggars. But the Pope took Francis serious and nobody else in the room was taking him serious that day. And much to the amazement of all the Vatican courtiers and nobles and cardinals, Pope Innocent III got down on his hands and knees and kissed the feet of Francis. Francis gave it all up and began to change everything. What would people think and what would the church think if the Pope is going to bless this poor beggar? And guess what? All the wealthy clergy and all the power people had to start giving up all their wealth. <laughs> they began to care about the poor again and the outcast. Francis single-handedly began to change society in Europe. Now, you know, they would have stopped Francis had they had the power, but since the Pope had blessed him, nobody could say anything. Francis brought back the simple teachings of Jesus Christ to the church in the 13th century and began to change everything. And he was famously, one of his favorite scriptures is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes. And they go like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who perse are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Francis preached this more than cute little religious platitudes like on some sort of greeting card. Francis believed these words of Jesus. He thought this was reality. This is the way it ought to be. And we call Francis fearless because Francis wasn't scared to set aside his wealth. He wasn't scared of doing without. And Francis wasn't afraid of his family or his father. Francis wasn't afraid of the lepers or catching the disease. He wasn't afraid of the bishop or the pope. Francis had been to war, been a prisoner of war, and been at death's doorstep for a year. He wasn't afraid of death anymore. Francis wasn't even afraid of women. He took a vow of celibacy, and his best friend was a woman named Claire, who started an identical uh, order of beggars for women. Fearless, describes Francis. 
And we have a lot to learn. Because Francis had no fear, he embraced everyone and everything as a gift of God. If you have no fear, you have no need to judge anyone. If you have no fear, you do not need to gossip or hold bitterness or do anything like that. Fear is the original sin that God is holding out and our world is not safe. So therefore, since Francis was fearless, he had no problem hanging out with lepers. No problem waking up each day saying, I will praise God. Whether I eat today, it doesn't matter. He lived one day at a time, daily bread. And not only that, he was the most joyous person. And all the other Franciscans became joyous people. They were called troubadours. They were jugglers, actually. They would sing. They'd write poetry. They'd write songs. They found God everywhere. Francis was, was the most jovial mystic you would ever encounter. He could find God in everywhere and everything. Every bird, every bug, every leaf, every tree, every animal. He's the patron saint of, of animals and nature. He's the original tree hugger. He was brown before green was... Wait, okay, he wore brown, but he, he was green. One of Francis' most favorite songs is called The Canticle of Creatures. And I'd like for you to uh, do a little experiment. Here, stand up. You're going to need to stand up. It's about to stand up. Take a break time here. We're going to do this canticle. Canticle is a fancy word for song. And uh, I, I want you to join me in saying this together as we read it together, pray it together, sing it together, whatever you want. We don't have a song, but we're going to read it. And I want you to crash into this thing because it is weird. And you're going to think, like, that's some sort of new age mumbo jumbo. But I got to tell you, this is orthodox and it's been in the church forever. We just don't get around to it very much. But see how this uh, messes with you, okay? This kind of mess with you a moment. Join me. Most high, all powerful, all good Lord, all praise is yours, all glory, all honor, and all blessing. To you alone, most high, do they belong. No mortal lips are worthy to pronounce your name. Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through my Lord, brother, son, who brings the day and you give light through him. And he is beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears the likeness. Be praised, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars. In the heavens, you have made them bright, precious, and beautiful. Be praised, my Lord, through the brothers' wind and air and clouds and storms and all the weather through which you give your creatures sustenance. Be praised, my Lord, through sister water. She is very useful and humble and precious and pure. Be praised, my Lord, through brother fire through whom you bring the night. You brighten the night. He is beautiful and cheerful and powerful and strong. Be praised, my Lord, through our sister Mother Earth, who feeds us and rules us and produces various fruits with colored flowers and herbs. Be praised, my Lord, through those who forgive the Lord of you, for, for love of you, through those who endure sickness and trial. Happy those who endure in peace, for by you, Most High, they will be crowned. Be praised, my Lord, through our sister bodily death from whose embrace no living person can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. 
Happy those who find doing your most holy will. The second death can do no harm to them. Praise and bless my Lord and give thanks and serve him with great humility. All right, thank you. Have a seat. What Christian as of late has been so bold as to call the wind brother or death its sister? Everyone expects that this sort of talk about Mother Earth is some sort of pagan nonsense. And yet, we hear it all the time in the world around us. Because I'm convinced that sometimes our secular, non-Christian friends, they understand that the whole universe and the world around us is a sanctuary before we Christians do. Because somehow we've talked ourselves out of it. Is it not true that no new father upon watching their first child be born. And they come to explain it, and you say, what was that like? And they say, it was a miracle. And they have no other words. What hunter doesn't sit in a deer stand this time of year and watch the gray light creep through the woods and doesn't have a mystical moment, you don't call it that, but that's what it is, and saying, I and God, me and God, we are tight in this moment. I am so small. And there's eternity creeping through the woods. Which one of us hasn't seen the fall colors on the trees and the bushes and not just felt a wordless joy? And then you try and take a picture with your cell phone and it doesn't work. <laughs> and we say things like, you should have been there. And now it's past. The moment's gone. Perhaps our non-Christian friends, you know, like I say, are more green than we who claim to be the ones who follow the Creator. Maybe some are better nature lovers than us who believe that there is an artist who made the art. And I think even some non-Christians and people outside the church are turned off because Christians inside the church have done this terrible disservice to Scripture. It's actually just a misinterpretation of Scripture that says, that says this. The world is going to burn, and it's going to turn to a crisp, and it's going to be vaporized, and it's going to be gone. There won't be anything, and you're going to float off to heaven and sit on a cloud and play a harp. Just lousiest theology ever. Because first, or Second Peter says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The end of Revelation said there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus will be its light. And our job is to prepare for it. You see, if you get your theology right, if you get your theology right, then global warming and pollution and hazardous waste and taking care of nature around us, conservation becomes part of our worship, part of our stewardship as Christians. We are preparing for Jesus' return. Not trying to get out of here before the place crisp up. You know, say, phew, I'm glad I made it. Sorry, the rest of you folks. Francis was right. All around us is a worship, is a sanctuary. Everything is sacred. It's been said that Francis was the last Christian, and because of this. And I show you uh, Francis' original habit, his robe, the original brown robe, not some little costume gimmick like I have on. Patched up, sewn together, eaten up, worn out, 
filthy and smelly. And now it's in a museum. Now it's in a museum. Francis was this fearless, radical follower of Jesus. And let's be honest, we don't like to be uncomfortable in life. And yet Christ is asking all of us to part with dollars and possessions and to realign our affections in this world and challenge us to rearrange our busy schedules of entertainment so we can serve the forgotten and the poor. And when I say those kind of words and it makes us cringe, it's because we don't even understand the joy that comes through giving or the joy in rearranging our schedule to worship God everywhere we go. We think that's a chore and that's a drag, and it's not true. And Francis had that figured out. And you and I both know that when you have given something away or even given a gift at Christmas time or anything else, and you give it, you know there is a joy that nothing will ever replace. But we don't like radical, and we don't want to be extreme, and we get scared when our children get too religious, you know. When I was a businessman in my 20s, I was working with a ministry, a youth ministry over in Mission Hills in that area. Yes, suffering for Jesus. I was a business guy. I was volunteering. And I had parents pull their kids out of the youth ministry because they didn't want them to get too much religion. And they would say, don't become a religious fanatic. And you know how many of those kids went on to change the world? Zero that I know of. But the few who stayed, I can tell you a handful of them have gone on to change culture and society. And right now I'm thinking particularly of Chris Jaley, who's ministered in the inner city. And he came from Shiny Mission East. And he's devoted his life to the poor and the oppressed and setting people free. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in a battle for the hearts and the minds of our children and even for ourselves. We need the next St. Francis to show up and it's going to be you and it might be our children. What can we do to bathe our world in a Franciscan way? Well, you know, wearing brown's one thing. But the best thing you can do is actually be a follower of Jesus yourself. In your house, in your car, you listen to Christian music. You read prayers like this prayer that I gave you uh, that's actually in your hand. We're going to close with today, the prayer of St. Francis. You pray at your mealtime. And when you step outside, you don't just say like, wow, cool colors. You say like, praise God, cool colors. God's an awesome artist. How could God be so creative? Hey, I mean, he came up with a platypus. All you Phineas and Ferb fans. You know what I mean? Who's coming up with this stuff? You bathe your child's world in a God-bathed world so that when you step outside like Abram in the Old Testament and you look up at the stars on these crisp nights and you say, I know it sounds stupid, but you'll get it when you're there with your kid, your son or whatever, and you say, I feel so small right now. And those stars have been there so long and it's just like God. And yet their light is shining down on us and God loves us. And then you can talk about quasars and black holes and all that stuff too. Interpret everything. Food, the seasons, our brains and learning in school. Interpret everything. That is your job is to be a poet like Francis, to be a prophet, to be a priest of the world around you to your family. 
And you grandparents and aunts and uncles, you guys got all sorts of, well, let's just say crazy privilege. Because you could say all sorts of nutty things and, you know, what are the parents going to say? They don't have to live with it. I mean, you know, you don't. Turn your kids into radicals like Francis. Turn your kids into radicals. We got to chase the brown habit, everyone. We've got to learn from the great cloud of witnesses that we're reminded of on this day, on All Saints Day, that there are people who went before us and we are standing in their glow and they are saying, who's next to join us? We have a song here uh, that I think is a prayer. It's, I actually think of it as a commissioning to go out and be Francis. And we're going to listen and pray these words, please. And then we're going to wrap up with a very, very famous prayer. Well, everyone, stand with me, please. And we'll wrap up with a prayer perhaps you've heard your whole life. And you didn't know where it came from, or maybe you've already done this, and this is just a part of your normal living. It's the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, and just before we conclude this, we have a congregational meeting right after this. So let's do that and participate in the life of the church and move the church forward. And also, uh, for the very few of you there is a, who work in the inner city, there is an Eastland board meeting. That's at noon here. So if you're a part of the Eastland project of rehabbing that house, then we have a board meeting as well. And those are the sort of things where we go around and we act like St. Francis. Yeah? So join me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And we all said, Amen. Go in peace.